day four of the trial of Derek Chauvin. Hear from loved ones and Chauvin's supervisor. Big people aren't mean. The train of being black, the, the trauma of being black, and a whistleblower faces jail. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, April 1st, 2021. And Major League Baseball season hobbled by restrictions on crowds and masks and the light uh, fight against COVID-19 begins today. But the Washington Nationals, uh, Nationals who were scheduled to host the New York Mets tonight, are going to have to uh, cancel the game after a Nationals player tested positive for COVID-19. The hesitant opening day uh, happens as the United States is closing in on vaccinating 100 million people in a race against an uptick in COVID-19 cases that's fueling fears of another surge. More than four, pardon me, more than 56 million people, 17% of the nation's population have been fully vaccinated. That's according to data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. President Joe Biden's new goal is to give 200 million vaccine doses during his first 100 days in office. Meanwhile, Dr. Anthony Fauci, the nation's leading health scientist, called the loss of millions of Johnson & Johnson coronavirus vaccine doses at a facility in Baltimore really quite unfortunate. The plant had not yet been authorized by the Food and Drug Administration to manufacture the drug in the vaccine, the drug substance in the vaccine, and so no doses currently in circulation have been infected. Fauci, uh, pardon me, Fauci said the loss was a result of human error. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki addressed the issue. The issue was identified as part of uh, rigorous quality control system checks and HHS made us aware late last week. We understand that this supply is headed to Europe and not for the United States. But how does that really overall sort of change J&J's um, supply plans? The issue doesn't impact, one, any of the J&J doses that are available, of course, already in the market. Johnson & Johnson has made clear that they expect to deliver 24 million doses in April and that they expect to meet their commitment of 100 million doses by the end of May. We are looking forward to that. Obviously, these are doses that the U.S. government has purchased, but we also have plenty of doses from Pfizer and Moderna regardless. So there is no, no um, supply disruption? For the supply that we are anticipating through the course of May, we've been assured that they expect to meet those deadlines. Press Secretary Jen Psaki. Johnson & Johnson said it met its March delivery goal of 20 million doses of the vaccine and plans to deliver 24 million more doses in April. It said it aims to deliver a total of 100 million shots by the end of May. And in another national story, Daniel Hale, 33, a former intelligence analyst, admitted in an Alexandria, Virginia federal court yesterday he had leaked classified information about drone warfare to a journalist and wrote anonymously about his experience in the national security establishment. He'd been scheduled to go on trial next week under the 1917 Espionage Act. He had argued the law meant to go after spies during World War I violated his First Amendment rights. Hale admitted sharing eight secret and three top-secret documents, but has no agreement with prosecutors to resolve the case. In 2013, after four years in the Air Force working as an intelligence analyst at the NSA, Hale became a contractor at the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. Hale reached out to a reporter who had just published a book about U.S. drone warfare. While the reporter is unnamed in court records, the Washington Post says the description matches Jeremy Scahill, a founding editor of The Intercept. One of Hale's lawyers is Jessalyn Radak of the Whistleblower Source Protection Program. She says after a 2014 search of his home, supporters thought Hale was free until a message came during the Trump administration. 
They put out like a warrant for his arrest and suddenly this case comes back alive. We were all surprised, people who had been working on it back in 2014. They said they're going forward with it. He's, they're trying to get him to voluntarily surrender himself to avoid the spectacle of being arrested and to submit to judicial process while they would charge him under the Espionage Act. That's a serious crime. It's an old law from 1917, so it's more than a 100-year-old law that's meant to go after spies, not whistleblowers, but unfortunately has been used very recently in the last decade to go after people who are accused of disclosing information to the media that happen to embarrass the U.S. government or expose illegalities by the U.S. government. He pled to this. He's pled guilty, isn't he? He pled guilty to only one count. It's kind of confusing the way it's structured. He pled guilty to this one count, and normally at that point, the government would dismiss the other counts. But this is a bizarre situation where the four remaining charges are dangling out there, and these are charges that would criminalize much of the conduct already covered in the plea bargain. This is often called charge stacking. What is happening here is they are leaving open, the government is leaving open the possibility of a trial if prosecutors are unhappy with the sentence imposed on Daniel, which will happen in July. What did Daniel reveal And how did he reveal it? And why is there so much anger about that revelation? Daniel was accused of disclosing documents in 2014 to the Intercept's founding editor, Jeremy Scahill, for his Dirty Wars project, which included a book and a film. The information he revealed also helped the Intercept publish the drone papers. This was just the down and dirty. It contradicted the U.S.'s party line that drone targeting was accurate and efficient. And it showed quite the opposite, that there were a number of innocent civilians who ended up being targeted and that the U.S. was not putting out accurate numbers of um, targets for kill and capture, that this was an overbroad program and far less accurate, and that there were innocent civilians, including an American father and his teenage son. He really was blowing apart the party line that the government was using to justify its targeted assassination program. In a lot of these cases, it's progressive whistleblowers specifically focusing on the murder of civilians or that innocent people are being killed. That's when it becomes espionage. The cases that have been prosecuted have dealt with whistleblowers revealing some of the darkest secrets in United States history, including torture, including surveillance, including war crimes. I've been reading that Daniel was a source for The Intercept. There have been several stories of Intercept sources being discovered. Do you think there are problems with how The Intercept handles sources? In my opinion, yes. There's been radio silence from The Intercept on this, but it is clear from the pleadings that this involved a leak to Jeremy Scahill. They didn't name the 
there, but they described the reporter and the news outlet, and it was pretty clear it was Jeremy Scahill of The Intercept. I have been critical of The Intercept's source protection because there are way too many clients I've represented who are on the blunt end of Espionage Act prosecutions who had been sources for the interest. That said, they, they've they been silent on this. I, I, I understand why I'm sure in their mind they would justify it as source protection, that they can't confirm Daniel as their source. But the cat's out of the bag on that. I would hope they would put out a statement about how inappropriate it is to continue to be prosecuting media sources. Jessalyn Radak is an attorney with the Whistleblower Source Protection Program. David Hale will be sentenced in July. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And George Floyd's girlfriend, Courtney Ross, tearfully told a jury Thursday the story of how they met at a Salvation Army shelter where he was a security guard with his great deep southern voice, raspy, and how they both struggled mightily with an addiction to opioids. Prosecutors put Ross on the stand as part of an effort to humanize Floyd in front of the jury and portray him as more than a crime statistic and also explain his drug use. She described how they met. She was looking for her ex-boyfriend on a lonely birthday when she ran into a security guard. I worked at a coffee shop for 22 years now, um, part-time. And I just cleaned up and closed up the shop. And I went to go visit my son's father, who was staying at um, Harbor Lights, the Salvation Army. Uh, shelter. He didn't seem to be coming down, so I waited in the lobby, and um, I wanted to talk to him about our son's birthday. I was pretty upset, and I started kind of fussing in the corner of the lobby. And, uh, At one point, <laughs> Floyd came to me. And uh, <laughs> Floyd has this great, deep southern voice, raspy. <laughs> and he's like, sis, you okay, sis? And I wasn't okay. I said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting for my son's father. <laughs> he said, um, I said, well, can I pray with you? Tired. We've been through so much, my sons and I. Ross went on to describe their mutual struggle against opioid addiction brought on by physical pain and the constant fear of a bad batch of street drugs. Both Floyd and I, our, our, our story, uh, it's, it's a classic story of uh, 
how many people get addicted to opioids. We both suffered from chronic pain. Mine was in my neck and his was in his back. We both um, had prescriptions. But um, after prescriptions uh, that were filled and uh, we, 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 we got addicted and, and tried really hard to uh, break that addiction many times. And you know, over how long of a period did this struggle go on for you, for both of you? Addiction, in my opinion, is a lifelong struggle. Uh, so it's something that we, we, we dealt with every day. You know, you, it's not something that just kind of comes and goes. It's something I'll deal with forever. And were there periods of time when you were not using opioids? Absolutely. And same question with regard to Mr. Floyd. Yes, absolutely. When you weren't using, uh, you know, prescription opioids, uh, you know, where did you get them? Out the street. Okay. On the black market. <laughs> and you knew that he was doing that as well? Yes. So there were times when you would obtain uh, non-prescription uh, opiate pills together? They would be other people's prescriptions. Well, why would you get them through other people's prescriptions? What do you mean? To make sure they were safe. Ross also described George Floyd's emotional reaction to the death of his mother and how that saddened and changed him. He was devastated. He loved his mom so much, and I knew that. We talked about her all the time. I knew how he, he felt. It's so hard to lose a parent that you love like that. In other testimony, retired Sergeant David Plozier of the Minneapolis Police Department testified today about a phone call he had with former police officer Derek Chauvin on May 25th, 2020, after Chauvin kneeled on George Floyd's neck. They played a tape with Chauvin's voice talking with Plozier as he sped to the scene of the killing and the sergeant's reaction. Hello, 230 here. Yeah, I was just... Uh going to call you and have you come out to our uh, scene here. Um, not really, but we just had to have to hold the guy down. He was uh, was uh, <clears throat> going crazy, wouldn't go in, uh, I'm not sure the moment, wouldn't go in the back of the uh, <clears throat> squad. Now, sir, uh, do you recognize the voice uh, in that call? Yes. And whose voice was that? Officer Sheldon. That was the conversation, or at least his end of the conversation, as you recall it on that day that you just described? Yes. He made a, a reference to shutting off. Can you explain to the jury what that was in reference to? I'd probably ask him if he had his camera on or off, since we're having a private conversation. And that would be within policy, within the body-worn camera policy, for him to shut off during, the, during that conversation. Is that right? Yes. Can you please describe the conversation you had with the defendant? What statements did the defendant make to you during the rest of that call? Um, 
Uh, I believe he told me that uh, they'd had uh, tried to put uh, Mr. Floyd, I didn't know his name at the time, but uh, Mr. Floyd in the car. Uh, he'd become combative. I think he mentioned that uh, he'd injured, it was either his nose or his mouth, a bloody lip, I think. And uh, eventually, uh, after struggling him with him, uh, he'd suffered a medical emergency and an ambulance was called. Retired Sergeant David Plosier of the Minneapolis Police Department. He was Derek Chauvin's supervisor on the day George Floyd was killed. An attorney for the Floyd family is Justin Miller. He listened to a clip of Chauvin explaining to a bystander why he put his knee on Floyd's neck, then said the defense in the case will try and set up Floyd as big and dangerous. That's one person's opinion. Gotta control this guy because he's a sizable guy. Looks like he's probably on something. He was trying to explain and trying to set up his uh his life for later. Of course, we all can see Mr. Floyd is a bigger guy. There were four other guys who were not small guys on top of him. And then Mr. Chauvin himself, who put his entire body weight on Mr. Floyd's neck while Mr. Floyd was restrained. So, yeah, he was a sizable guy and you had him restrained for nine minutes. And we saw what the result was. Miller went on to assert big people can be gentle, too. Well, I, I don't see a lot of struggle from Mr. Floyd. There was a lot of talk earlier about how big he was or how menacing or aggressive he was. And I didn't see any of that. Big people can be soft, too. You know, big people can be scared and, and big people can be fragile. I'm a big person myself, so I understand that sometimes people do not see us as people who can be fragile, but we definitely can. And you saw that with Mr. Floyd that day. And Miller describes the trauma of being black in America and how that can influence a person not to follow commands to do something that might be more dangerous than it looks if you're black. The trauma in dealing with the police is real. You deal with people who are trained and you are policed like you live in a third world country or a militaristic state. So when the police approached Mr. Floyd, he was understandably nervous. He didn't know what was going to happen. They kept trying to force him into small spaces. They admittedly said how big he was, but they wanted to force him into a small box that was not made for a person his size. He told them he was claustrophobic. They didn't do anything to look out for that. They didn't call a bigger car. They didn't do something to help him medically. They just pushed and forced and caused him to have more and more and more anxiety to the point where they felt like they needed to put him on the ground and then put their entire bodies on them on him until he died. Floyd family attorney Justin Miller. And finally, a gaggle of politicians earlier today announced the reintroduction of the African Burial Ground International Memorial Museum and Education Center Act. The lawmakers announced the legislation in Lower Manhattan at the African Burial Ground. The legislation would establish a museum and education center at the place, at the site in Lower Manhattan, that holds the remains of an estimated 15,000 free and enslaved Africans and early generation African-Americans from the colonial era. Senator Kristen Gillibrand is the lead sponsor of the bill. She was joined by Representative Jerry Nadler and several other New York politicians. The African burial ground is our nation's earliest and largest known African-American cemetery. This is the final resting place of more than 15,000 enslaved Africans and early generation African Americans whose forced labor laid the foundation for our city and our state. They built the fort, the mill, and the stone houses the first colonists lived in. 
They cleared land for farms and for docks. They widened roads like Broadway for wagons and built the wall that Wall Street is named after. The rediscovery of this site, considered one of the most important archaeological finds of our time, reminded us that we have so much left to learn and to understand about the history of our country. Now I'll turn it over to Congressman Nadler. It is vital that the stories told and the narratives shared reflect all of those who have been part of our collective national experience. However, we have lost sight of the need for a world-class museum, education and research center, and that's why we must pass this legislation. The museum is needed to tell the untold stories of those who helped build New York City and shed light on their perseverance and strength of character in the face of unbearable hardships, discrimination, and of course, exploitation. We will hear from Congressman Gregory Meeks. I'm full of emotion on the day that we see continuing in Minneapolis, Minnesota, the trial of George Floyd. I'm full with joy because just five minutes ago, my second daughter had another baby. And I'm thinking of this burial ground and the connection to why she could be today. Because if it wasn't for those brave souls that were able to withstand the middle passage and then deal with all of the racism, the enslavement, the Jim Crowism that existed in this country, if they couldn't maintain and succeed, my second grandchild could not be here, I would not be here. Our next speaker is Hakeem Jeffries. We are standing in a historic place that reveals the realities of our nation and its journey. We've come a long way as a country, we still have a long way to go. But you cannot tell the true American story without lifting up and recognizing the sacrifice, the pain, the suffering, and the death that enslaved Africans endured. America was born as a nation on high ideals, but at the same time, we had a genetic birth defect, an imperfection with respect to the question of race. And WBAI wishes love and congratulations to Representative Gregory Meeks on the new addition to the family.